0: Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Hey everyone, you remember me? Uh, well, some of you are probably like, "Wow, well, it's about time you put out another episode, Tom. And others were like, "Wow, well, we never realized you were gone. But uh, whatever your reaction might be, it is good to be back with you. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. It is, of course, December now, and we are headed into the holiday season. So this will probably be the only episode uh, prior to returning to a regular schedule in January. It's been over two months since my last episode, and I hadn't really anticipated taking that long a break. But an absolutely relentless travel schedule this fall, and two books in various stages of production, and something had to give. So, but today I've got a special crossover episode with Natalie Vardabasso, who longtime listeners will know has been on the podcast many, many times before. Natalie and I are putting the finishing touches on a manuscript for our book called Rehumanizing Assessment Through Story. And we're really excited about this book. And so we decided to hit record and talk about it. And that led us down a pathway of talking about the book. But then we talked about change through story. And things got a little bit deep from there. We started to talk about our personal mindsets through stories. So it was a really fun conversation that just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper as we went along. Again, as I said, my plan is to return to a regular schedule, a regular format every other week starting on January 15th. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Natalie Bartabasso. Okay, Natalie, we are finishing up our manuscript on rehumanizing assessment through story. So what exactly do we mean by that title?
1: That's a juicy title. It's a big title. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack. First of all, well, let's talk about the story of how we got here. When we set out to write this book, I kept saying the phrase to you, rehumanize assessment. And finally, one day you looked at me and said, what does that mean? (laughs) And through our conversations, we realized what is more human than story? It doesn't matter how old you are, where you live, what culture you belong to, what language you speak, every single one of us as human beings makes sense of the world through story. We get in random information from the world around us. We get little bits and pieces of stimulus, if you will. It travels to our brain, and I like to say our brain is the storyteller that puts all the pieces into order in a way that makes sense and fills in the gaps for us. So from antecedent to consequence. And that is how we have our sense of reality. That's how we make sense of the world. And if that is true, if we embrace story as a means of assessment, it can become a deep meaning-making process in and of itself. And plus, that then we're tapping into that rich qualitative space, which we need to tap into if we want to get evidence of things like the critical competencies that are necessary for success in our world today. So that's at the core of it. It's a deep meaning-making tool that we want to embrace as assessment so we can get richer evidence of the things we truly value.
0: Yeah. And and one of the things that you and I both recognized was that assessment needed to be rehumanized because people had over the course of the last maybe 10 to 20 years even it become way too clinical about assessment. That mm-hmm. assessment had become about number crunching, it had become about data spreadsheets, because as we had the renaissance with assessment back in the late 90s and early 2000s, we also had the tech boom, and so that led to everybody over-quantifying learning, mm-hmm. and I've said to, you know, workshops so many times that the vast majority of assessment evidence shouldn't be quantified and should steer clear of your grade book, and we use it for learning purposes. So, yeah. really, storytelling is at the heart of building student agency and helping students find their voice, because there, there is the things that they know, but then there's their story and the story they tell themselves is really that thread.
1: I feel like I need to interrupt here and say to all the Gen Z listeners, if there are any, we're giving them main character energy. Oh,
0: okay. (laughs) I love that. All right. Well, as a Gen Xer, I'm here to learn all the lingo and all of the things that have to be, I I appreciate that. No problem. Um, so yeah, this overly clinical approach to assessment, um, needed, um, this infusion of humanity. And so I think that's where we, we came together. And we also Mm -hmm. talked about the importance of assessment being culturally expansive and we leaned heavily on Zaretta Hammond's work and the cultural archetypes specifically with regards to those cultures that recognize and and lean on the oral tradition and and those that sort of emphasize the collective and how we can expand our assessment practices we tend to have assessment practices that emphasize the individual they Mm -hmm. emphasize the written Mm -hmm. and that's only one of four different combinations you could have with those archetypes and so telling the story or mm-hmm. using story to rehumanize assessment allows us to expand our assessment repertoire. It allows us to become culturally expansive, and it does allow us to rehumanize assessment in that manner.
1: You know that I love my little alliteration sayings. At the heart of this is we want to help folks go from a packet to a process. There you go. I like or that. A process, as, as Canadians <laughs> as say. A process, right. <laughs>
0: um, so what, when you think of some examples, like what are some of the examples we've talked about in the book?
1: Oh my oh, there's so many good ones. But the one that sticks with me and I've been sharing with a lot of people is one that immediately pushed my own thinking in a culturally expansive direction. Because when you hear a story, those of us in Western culture typically think of story as it has a beginning, middle, and end. And I think it was Plato or Aristotle that came up with this. And in that middle is some kind of a conflict or a confrontation. And that is the basis of like a lot of our Western thinking. However, the Eastern story structure that a lot of those cultures adhere to is a four-part structure. And it comes, uh, the name of it comes from a Japanese word, Kisho Tenketsu, which has to do with the establishment of normal, something that happens that offers a twist. And then instead of it being seen as like a conflict where there's a victor and a loser, it's a recalibration. It is a return to harmony. And I thought that was such a Mm -hmm. beautiful way to look at story rather than the very combative, conflicting narrative that forms the entire basis, I would argue, of our colonial culture. (laughs) Mm. So with that uh, lens in mind, there is a micro example and a macro example, because there's lots of ways we can bring in story to the classroom that are really small, micro moments. Maybe it's an exit ticket. It's a hinge point in your lesson where you want to unearth some stories that you can respond quickly. And there's also those moments when you want to look at an entire project through the lens of story. So I'm going to give you an example of both a micro moment where students might use a four-part structure, this Kisho Tenketsu, to tell the story of what they're doing is collaboration. Collaboration is present in every single content area. It's in all of the standards and often what makes collaboration fall apart is kids fall into conflict and that kid sucks. These -hmm. kids aren't doing their work. I hate this. Someone fix the problem. So if we teach them that there's a different way to think about the things that happen that are unexpected and how we recalibrate is how the kind of the story closes, we can give them that framework to say, okay, what was the goal of the project you were working on? How did you start working towards that goal? What is something that one of your peers did that surprised you? And how did you recalibrate to what it is that they offered? Mm -hmm. Rather than how did you fix it? How did you solve it? It's just a different mindset for them to see that this is a very stoic way. We can live our life with a lot more inner peace. Um, So that's a micro example. But a macro example to take that same structure actually comes from a project that I did and I've talked about on my own podcast. It's a nature documentary project I co-created with a middle school science teacher. One of my favorites. So in this project, the step one, the first part of the story was we taught them the basics of what do you need to know to understand an ecosystem? What's a producer, what's a consumer kind of the, the core vocabulary. And then with a group, they got to design their own imagined ecosystem that had all the appropriate pieces. Step two to develop a little bit further is they got to physically build it and bring it to life. Step three is the twist. This is where we introduced human impacts. So things like agriculture, deforestation. So they drew a human impact card and they had to apply that to the ecosystem and write a very in-depth constructed response of how would this change the ecosystem we've developed. The final piece where we recalibrate and bring it all together is they created a nature documentary that told the story of their ecosystem, the human impacts that have come into it, and how it's adapting and changing in the face of those human impacts. So it really matches what we see in society where it's not necessarily always about conflict or winners or losers, but that things are introduced and we recalibrate and it affects all the different pieces. So those are two... Examples of how you could pull in
0: a more culturally expansive I, I structure. I love that structure because mm-hmm. it takes us away from us versus them, me versus you, mm-hmm. I'm right, you're wrong, winners and losers, to say there's a disrupt. How do we return to harmony? So it's about us, it's about mm-hmm. we, and how do we come back together? I love that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is important to just make note of in terms of our book is the idea that we're looking at both telling the story of what students have learned so that's the story behind the standards there's mm-hmm. the things that they're learning in terms of their history or science or english language arts or anything like any of the subjects it's what they're learning so telling the story of what they're learning but also telling the story of how they learn as learners getting them to tell the story of their journey tell the story of their growth tell the story of their uh you know being metacognitive what do i need to do to to Advance myself as a learner. Do I know myself as a learner? What is my story when I get frustrated? What is, What do I do when I reach a, a roadblock in in a, in a journey or a project or a an inquiry based sort of investigation or something? Where do I? recognize my strategies for how I can advance myself as a learner. So being able to tell that story as well. So the story behind the standards, you know, what is the real story behind the American Revolution? What is the real story behind the discovery of certain scientific breakthroughs? What was happening prior to that? All of that is on the table for storytelling, Mm -hmm. but also for the learner. I think it's important also to mention that this is not fluffy. This is not yeah. an approach that says, hey, it's a free for all, because we still use fundamental sound assessment practices. So, as we're talking about story, we want to reemphasize something you mentioned early on, which is this is about using story as a valid assessment method. Yeah. And if that's the case, then we still have to underpin this work with sound assessment practices. And so, a lot of the fundamentals we talk about in the book are based on the six tenets of the assessment collaborative and how mm-hmm. we make sure that there's purpose behind the assessment, you know, sound design with architecture, accurate interpretation, instructional agility, communicating those results and ultimately leading to student investment. Mm-hmm. And so all of that underpins that work, this, the, the, the assessment fundamentals have to be there. So mm-hmm. it's important listeners as you sort of, if you are choosing to explore this book, know that this is not an exploration in fluff, it's an up, exploration in substance that really is underpinned by the assessment fundamentals. And really is an authentic way for us to address critical competencies because yeah. 21st century critical competencies, when you are telling the story of how you learn, you are thinking critically about yourself. Yeah. When we have the chapter on reflection, it's about thinking critically about you know, in retrospect, what have I learned through this situation? Mm-hmm. What have I learned about myself What it's, you know, again, imagination that's thinking mm-hmm. in an innovative or creative way. So mm-hmm. while the assessment fundamentals underpin the work that we're talking about in the book, the critical competencies also do that. And that's and that's a yeah. really big part of it. Now, yeah. let's think about some of the things that you discovered. Um, mm-hmm. we, we were talking earlier about like as we've been writing this book and, and getting ready to submit the manuscript here at the end of December. We've learned some things. What are some of the big (laughs) lessons that we've learned or that you've learned uh, through this process?
1: Well, a lot of lessons about myself as a writer, but I feel like I'll save that for a different podcast. (laughs) But uh, research around empathy was really interesting. I came in with a pretty heavy bias that stories just naturally unlock our empathy. When we hear someone else's story, we can step into their shoes and it helps us to move forward in this place of understanding. As I dug into the research, it's not always the case. We it's a yes and kind of a situation. Yes, we are naturally primed through theories of mind and things called mirror neur- neur- neurons to feel someone else's story, but it's our reactions to it that are unpredictable. So I can hear someone else's story feel uncomfortable just as they're feeling uncomfortable or scared or whatever. And I might decide to use that information against them Mm -hmm. because I don't know what to do with those feelings. I might decide to ignore that person and avoid them in the future because I don't like how that made me feel. Or something that happens that Brene Brown talks about often is this thing called narrative takeover, whereby a person or a group of people share a story, especially a story of harm, and someone else responds with, oh, you don't actually have it that bad. Let me tell you about my situation. A great example of this happening on a large scale recently was you know, during the pandemic, the black lives matter resurgence happened and then all lives matter came back. Mm-hmm. Well, your lives aren't that important because all lives are important. You know, yeah. that's called narrative takeover. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we don't experience empathy. It's that we're not very good at navigating the emotions to make the response productive, which sounds a lot like feedback when you think <laughs> about it. It's <laughs> true.
0: Yeah. Social media doesn't help with that either. That game of one-upsmanship and, and all of that in terms yeah. of, uh, You know, you think you have it bad. You think your students are challenging. You think your situation. um, That's interesting. (laughs) For me, it was the chapter on reflection. Um, I think I think most educators would be quite familiar with the idea that reflection is an important part of the learning uh, process. But I was surprised to learn at how impactful and how important it was to a point where it had me contemplating the idea that maybe we're planning backwards because, Hmm reflection tends to be the thing that teachers cut first. Right. If I'm running out of time, if I feel that I have to accelerate through standards or through learning goals, etc., oh, I don't have time for reflection. Mm. And it's kind of ironic because reflection is such a powerful part of the learning process. So it had mm. me contemplating this idea that when we plan, we should start with our reflection routines. So is the reflection routine, for example, every Friday, every Friday afternoon, I have my students spend 15 minutes with some very not just reflect, but give them some very sharp prompts about Mm -hmm. here's what I want you to think about as the week has gone on. And then you carve out time around that. But that time is protected because of how important it is to be reflective, to be metacognitive, to think about my own thinking, to Mm -hmm. reflect on my own learning. And so for me, it was about how how impactful reflection was Mm -hmm. and is there an opportunity for us to make that the first thing that is stuck into our planning? And then we plan around that so that we're not taking that out the first Mm -hmm. time, but Mm -hmm. it's the last thing we cut and we find efficiencies elsewhere. So for me, that chapter was, was uh, a really interesting chapter. It wasn't that I didn't know that reflection was powerful, but it was how impactful it could be. Mm -hmm. And they got me thinking about ways that we could plan around that.
1: Totally. I feel sometimes there's that, uh, confirmation and affirmation process through writing where mm-hmm. you kind of know a common sense from doing it in practice and seeing the benefits. Yeah. But when you read about the researched impacts, it's like, whoa, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> we
1: really need to take this seriously. Right. Like,
0: sometimes you're surprised by the research in terms of, wow, I didn't know that was impactful. And then sometimes yeah. you're surprised by, I knew that was impactful, but I didn't know to what degree. And exactly. this is kind of what we've, we looked at here. So, yeah. um, we talk a lot about in the book also like think what, what is possible for classrooms? What is possible mm-hmm. for schools? What's possible for districts? So when you think about Like when classroom teachers read this book, what are, what are they, what's possible for them?
1: Well, I think on, well, there's kind of a few layers to this. The way we organized the book is we have kind of Three foundational chapters that set the stage, you know, humanity through story, assessment through story, and competencies, critical competencies through story. And then the rest of our chapters might seem like a big diversion because we choose themes. We say conflict through story, imagination, craft, reflection, and perspective. I would argue those themes that we talk about, though, are all the things that we most want in our classroom. And then the only thing on that list people might have just heard and gone, um, I don't want more conflict in my classroom. <laughs> Thank you. But we really, we take a stance in that chapter that we always need some level of productive struggle and conflict to get mm-hmm. to a place of deeper understanding. That is part of our Western story mindset. So we have to acknowledge that right. cultural expansiveness is not about let's go for the ones that aren't being centered and just eliminate everything else. Mm-hmm. It's a both and not an either or. Mm-hmm. So I think at the core of this is you get those things in your classroom. You have a more imaginative students, you have more reflective mm-hmm. students, you have more people that can take perspective and truly practice the habits of building empathy and stepping into other people's shoes, which every teacher would agree that they want. And but to step out just a little bit farther and be a bit more meta with it, when we hold space for students to tell their story about themselves and who they are becoming and how that relates to the greatest conversations of human history, like science Mm -hmm. and social studies and math and English and literature, it's allowing them to find their true voice and have agency in this world and know how to act upon it. And I think that then has all kinds of repercussions to the different levels. And I know you wrote a lot about in your reflection chapter, the idea of like a defensive learning. And I think that's such an, that's kind of where I imagine a lot of the micro moments in the book, they scale up to that at yeah. a school or at a district level. Can
0: you say more about defensive? <laughs> yeah, that was interesting to read about. I, I specifically looked at Hollywood High School in Los Angeles that has their seniors uh, finish the year with, uh, they do an essay, they do an, a project, but they also do a defensive learning in, uh, in front of a panel of, of experts and, and community members. And from a reflection perspective, it's an opportunity for interaction. It's an opportunity for them to sort of assert themselves as to what they have learned, how much they've grown. Um, And while I haven't seen those firsthand in terms of that specific school, in the descriptions, it really was that opportunity to reflect. So this defense of learning, defense of what I've learned, defense of how I learned, in in a sense that there are people there that can help through questioning, through inquiry, they can help mm-hmm. the student or the whomever it might be, dig deeper into themselves and understand the narrative mm-hmm. of their learning, but also of what they've learned and, and how to pull that thread together. I thought that was a really interesting yeah. process For me, to explore.
1: The possibility is, what if that replaced exam weeks? Yeah, right. What yeah. a different. And what if it became just a part of the culture? You look forward to it. You're younger. You hear the grade twelve students sharing their defensive learning, and you're yeah. like, wow, like. I want to get there one day. I, the only memory I have of something similar to that was being in grade eight. My dad was the principal, as you know, in Vernon. And I got to go to the grad and see all the people winning the awards. Yeah. But what if that wasn't it? What if it was the stories right. that taught us about who they've become and who we could become rather yeah. than, oh, I hope I get that gold star.
0: <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, there's so, you know, it, it sounds cliche. We're only limited by our own imagination. Mm-hmm. But, you know exam weeks, all of these constructs that we've had in schools, we can reimagine what they might look like. And Mm -hmm. what does it mean to have an exam? An exam could mean a defense of learning. An exam could mean Mm -hmm. a panel. Now, there'd obviously be logistical things because I can imagine people out there saying, you know, we have a graduating class of 500 students. Mm -hmm. How would we do that? Mm -hmm. No question that would have to be thought through and logistically and how that would all play out. But even if parts of that, were brought to the to the conversation, or even if it was a, a, a some sort of not a defensive learning with a panel, but maybe almost like a science fair type mm-hmm. p- discussion or, or opportunity for experts to walk around and talk to, to learners. What can we do instead of finding yeah. the ways? I mean, I think this is the important part is instead yeah. of saying, well, we've got 500 graduates, we could never do that. Maybe the conversation is we have 500 graduates, what could we do? to rehumanize this assessment process what mm-hmm. could we do to rehumanize exam week how could we bring more story into that experience mm-hmm. so looking at it from an optimistic perspective of yeah. what's possible as opposed to what are all the roadblocks
1: and it starts with making up our minds that Our students deserve to be active agents in their own learning. They deserve to tell the story of their own learning. If you believe that to your core, you'll find all the reasons in the world to make it work. As you often say, when our mindset slips, (laughs) we'll find all the excuses. Oh, well, I have 500 students. Oh, well, you know, there's this requirement Mm -hmm. from this university, blah, 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 blah. And so for me, the big possibility here is also zooming out to say, don't just like think locally at the students in your school or in your district think we always have a duty in the role that we serve in education to zoom out and think of society in the future think of what future population do we want people that know themselves understand how to learn know how to seek truth and find valid information who can verify their learning this is this is the world i want to live in and it's a world i'm feeling that we're getting farther and farther away from into a place of scarcity echo chambers Uh, binary thinking, um, people really out of touch with themselves, unwell. And I'm feeling that this, I know obviously it's a delusion of grandeur perhaps, but I hope this book offers something to help catalyze other people to see that vision and help building it with us.
0: Well, we are pulling the manuscript together now. Uh, Usually takes about 9 to 12 months. So even though we're talking about it now, it'll probably be published uh, coming up in the fall of 2024. So listeners, Mm -hmm. you can look for that. But uh, we are super excited about the book and uh, hope you will be too. Okay, well, since we... Talked about rehumanizing assessment through story. We thought we would continue this conversation and talk more about story. And this time, talk about change through story. So, <laughs> Natalie, um, what's the public narrative framework?
1: Ah, uh, this is something I stumbled upon. And applied it to my own practices as a leader who was seeking change in assessment and grading. And it was a way to go, oh, <laughs> that's why certain things worked. So the public narrative framework is created by a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. His name's Marshall Ganz, and he specializes in leadership, organization, like civil practice of how to move and how to shift and towards positive change. And at the core of it is this belief that, and like we've talked about around our book, we are all storytellers, innately, naturally. We make sense through story, yet there's an art to telling a story that moves people. Mm-hmm. And that is something all great leaders need to learn how to do. And Marshall Gans has researched this and taken it up in a lot of his work. And he's found that there's a framework to the type of stories that we tell that galvanize others towards action. And it has three parts. The story of self, the story of us, and the story of now. The story of self, a good leader has done that personal excavation to understand why am I so deeply called to this thing that I want to seek change in, that I want to transform. What is it? What is it in my own life? What transformation did I witness and experience? What were the outcomes that I was able to then see and how do I want this for other people? The story of us is who am I speaking to? It's a different way of telling a story that we might bring into our practice, whether we're talking to students versus talking to teachers and our colleagues versus talking to our parent community. So it really stems from understanding who they are and what they value and speaking to those values. And the last piece is the story of now. And this is where we often forget to close our, our opportunities to speak as leaders. What do we want people to do? Name it what is the price of not doing it? And what is the very clear, compelling vision that everyone can look towards if they make this change and go through the hardship of change? Because there is no change that is easy. They're always hard. That is the basis of change. So that's basically the structure. And and why it works, I believe, is it grounds things in an emotional place rather than a clinical place. And we've said many times change is more emotional than clinical. If I can see that a leader has walked this path, they've been through the change, they've navigated the hardships, and they've come out the the other side with this experience of what is possible, I'm going to trust them. Mm -hmm. I'm going to feel that they're authentic. I'm going to feel that they're in it rather than just someone telling me what to do.
0: It's definitely a a powerful. I know that I've had some really great experiences with telling the story and the the story of my own journey in grading and assessment is Mm -hmm. one that had me. 13 years as a very traditional grader, someone who was definitively mean to kids, someone who was Mm -hmm. the zero guy, the late penalty guy. And so when I begin the workshop, uh, grading from the inside out workshop, I begin early on telling my story, my assessment Mm -hmm. story. And the arc of that story is someone who was steeped in traditional grading practices and You know, you have some fun with it, but really the the underlying message is that I was as ruthless as anybody as a traditional grader. And I came out the other end as somebody who transformed his grading practices in the early uh, to mid 2000s. And that story has stuck with me. And I think that has some impact um, on audience members. And it's not meant to be manipulative or coercive, it's really there to help people understand that this journey is tangible it's possible it's accessible to you you just have to decide that you want to make a change and then you find your pathway forward but the impact i think it kind of neutralizes people a little bit yeah. as well because when i tell the story of being a high school history teacher and i was you know ruthless in my grade book and all of that and i changed that that Neutralizes some of the uh, well, what does this person know? And and mm-hmm. I, that's that's an elementary example. We're high school, and all these things. There mm-hmm. there is a neutralizing element to it that really impacts people, and it also. Impacts in the sense that I'm not just a talking head up there talking about assessment technique and validity and reliability (laughs) and accurate grading, that I'm a human being as well and that I did a lot of things wrong. And, you know, one of my favorite expressions is experience comes from poor judgment (laughs) and you make mistakes. And I made a lot of mistakes as a teacher early in my career. And I think what that does to the audience, you know, if we get into storytelling techniques as a leader, it's making that connection in an authentic way and personalizing it so that you're seen as not a leader. You're seen as a human being that yeah. may be leading. You are a person mm-hmm. first and you are authentic in your emotions. You're, you're authentic in how you've tried to navigate this career. Nothing has ever been perfect. And that impact, mm-hmm. um, you know, owning your mistakes, humanizing yourself. I think that's why we tell stories because telling our story is what humanizes us in a situation where otherwise we would just be seen as the presenter Mm -hmm. and the person delivering the content as opposed to making eye contact and letting them know that, hey, here's where I fell short and here's where I struggled, but here's how I recovered.
1: Exactly. And even if you're not an expert storyteller, I've seen situations, because you're a very good storyteller, and we've had a lot of practice Mm in telling our story over and over and over. We know those moments to pause and the moments to crack a joke and then to like bring the hammer down and make it more, (laughs) you know, you and... There is something magic that happens and you feel it in the room too. When you shift to, I'm going to tell you this story, you see the pens go down, Mm -hmm. you see the heads come up, you see the hands stop typing on the computers. Everybody leans in a little bit more and there's something biological there because story is all about... Um, the resolution of anticipation. Mm -hmm. I'm going to set something up and you're not quite sure where this is going to go, but with you, it's like, and for me, my story has a lot to do with how I never wanted to be a teacher and I hated education. (laughs) So there's dramatic irony there. They're like, what the heck? How did you end up on this? Like, why are you here? (laughs) And yours is I'm here to talk about grading. And let me tell you about what a crappy grader I was. And they're like, how did this guy, you know? So there's like that (laughs) natural pulling in, um, which I think is a part of the art. Um, But I've also seen leaders in large districts I've worked with get up at the start of the school year you know, red in the face, their hands are shaking, they're not used to doing this type of thing, and they decide to share a personal story about why this shift in collaboration practices they're taking up matters, why these equity shifts are so important. And it comes from their own story and something they've experienced in their life. You could hear a pin drop. Mm-hmm. The the level of vulnerability and it takes to share your story as a leader because yeah as we've talked about with empathy, you never know how that story is going to be taken or received or manipulated or mm-hmm. used against you. I think is always something that's going to grab people's attention and it. At least then you can move forward knowing there's some understanding there.
0: Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, we, we talk a lot about change being more emotional than clinical and reaching people emotionally through story is, is the critical part. Um, it's not about, again, we want to be clear that we're not, saying as a leader, you need to manufacture your story. We're saying you need to find your story. What is your story? What is your journey? Because you can have all the technical know-how you want, but again, you have to reach people emotionally. You have to make Mm -hmm. a compelling case for change. And so when when grading from the inside out, I talk about accuracy and confidence, and accuracy Mm -hmm. being that technical side of the grading ledger. But then there's the confidence piece. Why would we do things that undercuts our students' confidence? And so we want to take people, when we tell our stories, that emotional side takes us from what the problem is to what's possible for us. Mm -hmm. Like story is how we articulate vision. Mm -hmm. Story is how we articulate what's possible for us going forward. Um, and you can't just lean on the technical side because change again, the, 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 The so-called elephant in the room is the emotions around change. And and we know this through the grading work, which is it's one of the most emotionally charged topics we've ever dealt Mm -hmm. with. And so you can't just tell people, well, this is how you gain accuracy. Mm -hmm. You've got to reach them emotionally. And the power of emotions is that that's where the compelling need to change or shift comes from. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come from showing them some intricate mathematics on the calculator it comes from reaching them emotionally and letting them see that yeah. there's a need to change now. And there's a possibility for our context going forward. Yeah. So pains and gains, pains and gains. Absolutely. <laughs> We're, we'll talk about pains and gains in a, in a moment, but you know, leaders really need to focus on, find your story and authentically share that story as the underpinning to why change needs to happen in terms of whatever change you're looking yeah. for.
1: Yeah. And don't, afraid of naming the emotions whatever Mm -hmm. the pain the painful emotions were and whatever those wonderful emotions were when I think of my story I really try to highlight the level of alignment and authenticity and integrity I felt because Mm -hmm. I went into a classroom that I I didn't want to be a teacher Mm -hmm. but I was going to change the system and I was going to be that Mm -hmm. person and because I had no experience with assessment and grading fundamentals and like the sound practices Mm -hmm. I replicated everything I had experienced because I had no other tools I always like to say it's like the ghost of every teacher that stood on that spot before me came through me and and then I said if you don't you'll get a zero because I didn't have any other tools (laughs) and when I looked at myself at the end of that first year where I had kids failing and I was ruthless and I was cruel honestly I just felt like embarrassed shame Mm -hmm. and I wanted to feel aligned with what I said I wanted to be when I went into education and so that's a feeling i know other people regardless of assessment or grading we all feel that sometimes yeah. that, that need to be something and feel something else
0: yeah i think most people in their quiet moments don't feel good about some of those practices but don't have an answer for what to do instead and so mm-hmm. if we notice that things need to shift and change then it's through story that you're going to reach people emotionally yeah,
1: yeah. and so it doesn't it's not just the leaders' stories that matter.
0: Of no, course. of course not.
1: I think, I've always said that once I found my story and I shared it and, and found ways to amplify my own practice and the shifts I'd made, every, I became quickly the facilitator. Yeah. I became the story coach. Mm-hmm. All PD days that were coming up, my hope was to fill them with other voices. Mm-hmm. And, I love to amplify the messy, imperfect mm. stories of change. The mm. people who went to one of our former PD days and said, you know what? I'm going to try this defensive learning thing in my classroom where the kids are going to come and advocate for the grade they think they deserve mm. based on the criteria we established. And yeah. But they'd always get so scared because they're like, but this went wrong and this went wrong and this wasn't perfect. I'm like, that's <laughs> the best. That is the reason you need to share the story to show people that. You've also had some really cool things happen that surprised you and things that went wrong. But it's like you said, experience comes from poor judgment. It's by sharing those stories, we can learn so much so quickly as a community and normalize just starting and being imperfect and messy and not having it all figure it out, which is something we have a hard time with in education.
0: (laughs) You make me think of, you know, when it's not, you're right, it's not just about the leader story because some of the stories of the teachers on a faculty, for example, and a leader is trying to propose a change, whether it's a department Mm -hmm. chair or whatever, and the story of some people in that room may be they tried to initiate change 15 or 20 years ago and they got burnt and they didn't get supported. Mm -hmm. And now there is legitimately hurt feelings of being abandoned or feeling unsupported in the work. And that has to be unearthed before we can truly have people feel compelled to, to support an effort now, as opposed to what happened before. And of course it's the student stories as well. It's the story for students who, what is their story around grades or what is their story around the assessment experience? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we talked earlier about exam week, like what, Mm -hmm. what is the story around that? So I think leaders can initiate, uh, you know, a compelling voice for change, with their stories, but then opening it up to hear all of the stories, to understand where that common thread is and what we need to address going
1: forward. Those are probably the most important stories, if you're being honest. And I think we always forget to ask students. Yeah, Ask them. They'll tell you exactly what you need to change about assessment and grading. (laughs) (laughs) They'll let you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So find your story. And that's ultimately how we're going to make change happen. It's
1: time for a radical transformation of our education system.
0: It's time to each find our unique voice and come together in an inclusive space that values our differences. It's time to leave antiquated assessment and grading practices behind and cultivate brave spaces of authentic learning.
1: There's strength in numbers let's build a critical mass of change makers.
0: If you're ready to become a visionary catalyst for change in education, then join myself, Katie White, and my two co-hosts, Natalie Vardabasso and Tom Shimmer at the second annual Empowerment Ecosystem Summit. We are offering two ways for you to join us this year, in Calgary, Alberta on April 11th and 12th, or in Vancouver, British Columbia, May 23rd and 24th.
1: Use the link in this episode's description to check out our website for more details and to register.
0: We want to continue the thread of story and mindset. You know, on my podcast, I have the Mindset Minute, which is usually not a minute. It's usually a lot longer. So let's call it a mindset moment. But we've talked as, as we've written this book a lot about stories and mindsets and the stories we tell ourselves personally. And so when you think about that idea of mindset for people in, mm-hmm. in our lives and the role that stories play in that, what, what does that make you think of? Mm.
1: It makes me think of something I once heard Brene Brown say, and it's a phrase she often uses in her life and coaches others to use as well as a psychologist, and it's, the story I'm telling myself is. Mm-hmm. Because, as we've already mentioned, everything in our mind is a story, that we are taking some factual things, but we're usually filling in the blanks and trying to put it into a, a meaningful sequence that gives us some semblance of truth and reality. Mm-hmm. But, as any English teacher would know well, the narrator is often unreliable. <laughs> so when we are aware that the stories we tell ourselves aren't necessarily true, there's so much opportunity to not only check them with other people. If I come to you and I'm frustrated by something you did and I'm like, oh, Tom is such a jerk. He cut me off when I was in the middle of speaking on that podcast. I could, ins- I could come at you and attack you and say, Tom, why are you being so rude to me on the podcast today? And you're going to feel defensive. Or I could say, Tom, the story I'm telling myself is that you didn't like what I had to say, so you cut me off. Is that jiving with what happened in your mind? Mm-hmm. You know, And so we can then just put it out there like, okay, let's just analyze these stories mm-hmm. because we know they're not necessarily true. Our mind can fill in all the pieces that aren't necessarily there. And this becomes so true when certain stories we tell ourselves become habitual. So Carol Dweck talks a lot about this in her book, uh, uh, what is the name of her book? Mindset? Mindset. It's called Mindset. Mindset. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. But she talks about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Yeah. The stories that we repeatedly tell ourselves, either I can figure this out, I'm not there yet, I have the ability to learn this, that's growth mindset, mm-hmm. fixed mindset, I can't do this, I suck, I don't want to make any mistakes, you know, we're not going to then shift and grow, and this goes, this isn't her research is not the first person to unearth this and talk about it. It's been there in psychology. I've discovered in the book for a long time. Mm -hmm. And one of the oldest pieces of research I found was around something called explanatory styles, Mm. which I liked because that kind of sounded more like storytelling. How do we explain the events of what's going on around us Mm -hmm. in our own minds? And people tend into two categories, the victim or the agent. Am I the victim of my surroundings and things that are happening and there's nothing I can do about it? Or am I the person who is an agent of my life and my choices and my decisions and my actions? Mm -hmm. And of course, you can kind of see some overlap there, right? With the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. So story is at the heart of everything to do with mindset because the stories that we tell ourselves about what's happening in our lives and why is who we become and how we start to view the world.
0: When I think about... Stories. I think about how often we as human beings live in so much fiction. Mm -hmm. We, we, and we have to learn to let go of a lot of the fiction because Mm -hmm. we, we are constantly telling ourselves stories. We are filling in the blanks. Mm -hmm. We are constantly filling in the blanks to create a narrative that may or may not be true. You know, if Mm -hmm. my, if I'm meeting a friend for lunch and he's 15 or 20 minutes late, Mm -hmm. that part is true. My friend is late. But I'll start, you know, crafting a narrative and I start mm-hmm. filling in the blanks as to why he's late and why he's not showing up on time and why this is disrespectful and he must not value our friendship and all that. And all of that could be a complete lie, a complete fiction. But that's, I think, what we do in, in sort of innately to mm-hmm. make meaning about what's happening. We, we fill in the blanks and we start telling ourselves stories of things that we have no confirmation that they're true, but we tell ourselves and we believe them to, to be true, because we're constantly trying to make sense, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and these stories are are often like we we tell ourselves things, and the narratives that we craft for ourselves are often quite limiting. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting thing to examine. I, I don't think I'm immune from it. I think we we're, we're all. I'm not. Talking as mm-hmm. though I'm <laughs> immune from all of this because we're not. We're, we're all susceptible to this and we say things that are limiting. You know, when we say, you know, uh, I, I'm just a teacher or, I always have bad luck. Nothing ever works out for me. We we tell ourselves these stories repeatedly, and they will affect our emotions because what we think. And I've told you know listeners mm-hmm. of my podcast know that I've talked about this before, which is how our thoughts cause our emotions. Yeah. If you want to know why you're feeling a certain way, you're probably just examine what you're thinking because mm-hmm. what you're thinking is going to cause those emotions. Mm-hmm. And so these stories are are limiting to a point, and and they're so limiting that we end up uh, almost playing a character. Like we, we go through life living as a character. We, we, we play a character who isn't really who we are. And something I've always thought to ourselves, myself is as we play these characters, these roles, like I'm a teacher, I am a partner, I am a. Um, you know, a cousin, I'm an uncle, I'm a father, I'm a whatever role mm. you're playing, you're fulfilling that role, but you may or may not be fulfilling your true nature or your true yeah. self. And so something I've often thought about is, you know, when we live in those fictions, when we lie to ourselves that way internally, um, we're almost living for other people. I'm, I'm fulfilling a role. I'm living in this fiction and... I'm living for other people. Mm -hmm. But when you start to tell yourself the truth, when you start to think about the truth of what you're thinking or how you feel, I think, you know, not to sound too intense, but I I think that's where you find inner peace is where you start telling yourself the truth as opposed to living through fiction and telling yourself a
1: lie. There is so much time back there. (laughs) I feel like I can think of so many experiences in my life where the louder I proclaimed something the more I was trying to quiet that inner truth because it was harder to admit it because then what if I don't get it or what if I fail Mm -hmm. or what if I'm unworthy? Here's an example. When I was about five, six years into my teaching career, I loved teaching. I got to a point I was really feeling pretty competent as a teacher and I dreamed of what else I could do. How could I grow my impact beyond the classroom? I didn't want to say that out loud. Because that's scary. That's vulnerable. And what if it looks like I'm not grateful? And so I'd say so loudly, but I never want to leave the classroom. I always want to have a foot in the classroom. I always want to work with kids. And I put myself in a scenario then where I was starting to do coaching, but I was basically still full-time teaching and I burned out hard because I didn't have a single second to myself. I was basically trying to do two full-time jobs. And the truth, the deep truth is I really want to dig in to this coaching job, because it's so different. And working with adults is very different than working Mm -hmm. with kids. But I didn't want to say that. And it felt easier. And I would appease everyone around me if I just said, Oh, but I always just want to be in the classroom. And I want to work with kids. But deep down, that wasn't totally true. And the more you feel that sense of playing a role that you think others want, I think you feel more shame. I think you start to feel I'm someone who's living a lie or I'm a liar, I'm a bad person, that, that lack of integrity starts mm-hmm. to get very loud. Yeah. And what's interesting is like, you know, I have a background in performing arts and theater and all of that. So I always attributed this habit to that role of theater in my life. But when I was about 13, which would kind of be right the end of middle school, and I know this is a metacognitive ability we all develop around that age. I can remember clearly going into school and choosing characters I wanted to play that day. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick this outfit because this looks like what this type of a character, the artsy character who's going to work on some poetry would Mm -hmm. wear if she went to school today. Where would she sit? What would she listen to? Like, what kinds of things would she do? Who would she talk to? Who would she not talk to? Mm -hmm. And I would actively, in my mind, be playing a role. And I always thought it was because I was a theater kid. But I'm realizing now I think we all do that. To some degree, I think we learn we start to do it a lot in our youth. And then before you know it, we've fallen into this role that suddenly everyone believes us in. They give us promotions for we get all these public accolades for and you go, oh, crap, they didn't realize I was lying.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Finding, uh, you know, finding that truth. I, I think when you when you talked about character. Again, I always seem to harp on social media, Mm. but I think about, you know, so many people who are drawn to social, not everybody on social media, don't get me wrong, but how many people are drawn to social media because they can be that performative character. Mm -hmm. I can be, I can reinvent myself In my avatar, in my Twitter feed, in my Instagram feed, I can, I can sort of create a character, a character of myself and a version of people that I want them to think about me. Again, not everybody does that, but you can see that in Mm -hmm. social media for sure. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you're playing that character, we, we all know it's not our truth. Yeah. We all know that when I'm playing the character in that role. And I'm sort of appeasing the external Mm -hmm. world. I'm making sure that I'm, you know, placating everything I need to placate. That's where restlessness comes from. That's where we have a sense of unease. We have a sense of desperation. We have a sense of of feeling as if we long for a different life, but we don't know how to get there. But I think that's where, you know, you go from, you know, we talked earlier about pains to gains, Mm -hmm. right? How do we go from pains to gains? I think when you start to live, In the true nature of your story, you live in in your truth and you actually honor that idea within you, that's when you go from feeling anger to finding peace, right? Mm -hmm. That's when you go from having just this crippling envy Mm -hmm. to feeling gratitude and grateful for what, what you have. You go from that internal sense of desperation to feeling calm. Mm -hmm. And ultimately you go from internal shame to acceptance. You accept who you are.
1: And then you're able to accept everyone else. That's a big part for me too. I've realized that when I'm in a cycle of negativity, judgment, and cynicism, Mm -hmm. I'm usually not accepting a version of myself. And so I'm angry at other people who are able to do so. Right. And I'm going to say it <laughs> rather than doing the hard thing, which is looking like doing some deeper reflection. Like mm-hmm. we talked about and going, what's the real story here? What is the lie and what is the truth?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's um, not easy. No, it's, we make it sound easy. <laughs> this is oh, just sir. go from anger to peace. <laughs> just know, go honey. from shame to acceptance. You know, yeah. It's, it's hard work. And I think all of us kind of experience that and finding finding that sort of internal peace not easy but i think a lot of times that's where you get projection from people that's where we start to we are our, our our disrupt or our un, unrest internally gets projected onto other people and we start fulfilling those roles so
1: yeah. um, i think it's something important to talk about here too is that you can get to that place of being you know calm grateful peaceful and have folks in your life that you love, maybe even your family members, not like the version of you that you're becoming yeah. because it's a change and they're uncomfortable with that change. But what's beautiful about being in that place of acceptance is you can accept that too. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it even leads to a place of realizing healthy boundaries as yeah. we go into the holidays. No, for, <laughs> it's probably really right. important to yeah. talk about sometimes yeah. you need to stay in a hotel uh. because you realize <laughs> that having your own space and a time to decompress on your own is really important. Yeah. Not that I'm speaking from first hand experience.
0: Well, it can come <laughs> and it can come at work. It mm-hmm. can come when you when you finally find the courage to find the truth about, you know, asserting yourself mm-hmm. with. Your principal or with your boss mm-hmm. or with, you know, and, and, and setting up boundaries and saying I'm, I'm no longer willing to accept that in my professional life and that you start to set boundaries up around respect. You mm-hmm. start to because the truth is that you feel disrespected and now you start to find that within you. People can get very uncomfortable with that as well in a professional setting. They get- but we talked
1: about this from the other side, right? Because right. they're going to go to judgment, to shame, to cynicism, right. because they're now getting a reflection back of what they feel they can't have.
0: Absolutely. But the
1: beauty of it is that that's this, this is the ultimate education. When I think of the true purpose of education, it's this. Mm-hmm. It's living in these spaces between our true selves and our fiction, mm-hmm. the space between one another and how we're navigating that journey and how we all constantly get closer to our true selves.
0: It makes me wonder if... Now, this is going to get pretty heady here, but is this is this the real journey in life that if what kind of a life could I experience if the narrative inside my head that I was constantly crafting was not from that place of anger, not from that place of cynicism. But if it was that narrative coming from a place of peace, the narrative coming from a place of acceptance, the narrative was coming from from the place of gratitude and calmness. Is that what it means? I don't know. Is Is that that what it means? Self actualization. (laughs) So, just no problem, listeners. We're just giving you the meaning of life here at the end of the podcast. Anyway, so happy holidays. Happy holidays. (laughs) That's right. Um, But honestly, like, it makes me think about what does it truly mean to be self actualized? Mm -hmm. Is that is that what it is? Can I find a place where I stop telling myself those stories, stop filling in those blanks, and live from a truth? Of well, what I know. Yeah. Of. If
1: we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I yeah. mean, the top three, you've got obviously self-actualization at the top, and then you've got esteem, and then you've yeah. got love and belonging. I think it kind of works in that when you have that love and belonging, where you have that connection to your true self, mm-hmm. you become someone you can be proud of. Yeah, You, you become someone you feel is worthy. That's the esteem. Mm-hmm. And then you can start building the life you've always dreamed you were never worthy of.
0: Yeah. That's that's very profound. <laughs> <laughs> it is. No, I love it. Um, the explanatory, the explanatory styles, the stories we tell ourselves, that really is the work of all of our mindsets and mm-hmm. how we find our inner peace.
1: This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash Now let's get back to the episode.
0: Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast or me on Twitter. It's at Tom Shimmer at Tom Schimmer Pod. Instagram, at Tom Shimmer at Tom Schimmer Podcast. You can follow the podcast on YouTube as well as TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, Tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for upcoming professional learning events, as well as the link for my new book, Redefining Student Accountability. Uh, Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. But a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Happy holidays, everyone.